Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book One. I went down to the Piraeus yesterday with Glaucon, the son of Ariston. I wanted to say a prayer to the goddess, and I was also curious to see how they would manage the festival, since they were holding it for the first time. I thought the procession of the local residents was a fine one, and that the one conducted by the Thracians was no less outstanding. After we had said our prayer and seen the procession, we started back towards Athens. Polemarchus saw us from a distance as we were setting off for home, and told his slave to run and ask us to wait for him. The slave caught hold of my cloak from behind. Polemarchus wants you to wait, he said. I turned around and asked where Polemarchus was. He's coming up behind you, he said. Please wait for him. And Glaucon replied, All right, we will. Just then Polemarchus caught up with us. Adamantus, Glaucon's brother, was with him, and so were Niceratus, the son of Nicias, and some others, all of whom were apparently on their way from the procession. Polemarchus said, It looks to me, Socrates, as if you two are starting off for Athens. It looks the way it is, then, I said. Do you know how many we are, he said? I do. Well, you must either prove stronger than we are, or you will have to stay here. Isn't there another alternative, namely that we persuade you to let us go? But could you persuade us if we won't listen? Certainly not, Glaucon said. Well, we won't listen. You'd better make up your mind to that. Don't you know, Adamantus said, that there is to be a torch race on horseback for the goddess tonight? On horseback, I said, that's something new. Are they going to race on horseback and hand the torches on in relays, or what? In relays, Polemarchus said. And there will be an all-night festival that will be well worth seeing. After dinner, we'll go out to look at it. We'll be joined there by many of the young men, and we'll talk. So don't go. Stay. It seems, Glaucon said, that we'll have to stay. If you think so, I said, then we must. So we went to Polemarchus's house... And there we found Lysias and Euthydemus, the brother of Polemarchus, Thrasymachus of Chalcedon, Charmontides of Paeania, and Cletophon, the son of Aristonymus. Polemarchus's father, Cephalus, was also there, and I thought he looked quite old, as I hadn't seen him for some time. He was sitting on a sort of cushioned chair with a wreath on his head, as he had been offering a sacrifice in the courtyard. There was a circle of chairs, and we sat down by him. As soon as he saw me, Cephalus welcomed me and said, Socrates, you don't come down to the Piraeus as often as you should. If it were still easy for me to walk to town, you wouldn't have to come here. We'd come to you. But, as it is, you ought to come here more often, for you should know that as the physical pleasures wither away, my desire for conversation and its pleasures grows. So do as I say. Stay with these young men now, but come regularly to see us just as you would to friends or relatives. Indeed, Cephalus, I replied. I enjoy talking with the very old, for we should ask them, as we might ask those who have traveled a road that we too will probably have to follow, what kind of road it is, whether rough and difficult or smooth and easy. And I'd gladly find out from you what you think about this, as you have reached the point in life the poets call the threshold of old age. Is it a difficult time? What is your report about it? 
By God, Socrates, I'll tell you exactly what I think. A number of us, who are more or less the same age, often get together in accordance with the old saying. When we meet, the majority complain about the lost pleasures they remember from their youth, those of sex, drinking parties, feasts, and the other things that go along with them. And they get angry, as if they had been deprived of important things, and had lived well then, but are now hardly living at all. Some others moan about the abuse heaped on old people by their relatives, and because of this they repeat over and over that old age is the cause of many evils. But I don't think they blame the real cause, Socrates, for if old age were really the cause, I should have suffered in the same way, and so should everyone else of my age. But as it is, I've met some who don't feel like that in the least. Indeed, I was once present when someone asked the poet Sophocles, How are you as far as sex goes, Sophocles? Can you still make love with a woman? Quiet man, the poet replied. I am very glad to have escaped from all that, like a slave who has escaped from a savage and tyrannical master. I thought at the time that he was right, and I still do, for old age brings peace and freedom from all such things. When the appetites relax and cease to importune us, Everything Sophocles said comes to pass, and we escape from many mad masters. In these matters, and in those concerning relatives, the real cause isn't old age, Socrates, but the way people live. If they are moderate and contented, old age, too, is only moderately onerous. If they aren't, both old age and youth are hard to bear. I admired him for saying that, and I wanted him to tell me more, so I urged him on. When you say things like that, Cephalus, I suppose that the majority of people don't agree. They think that you bear old age more easily not because of the way you live, but because you're wealthy. For the wealthy, they say, have many consolations. That's true, they don't agree. And there is something in what they say, though not as much as they think. Themistocles' retort is relevant here. When someone from Seraphis insulted him by saying that his high reputation was due to his city, and not to himself, he replied that, had he been a Seraphian, he wouldn't be famous. But neither would the other, even if he had been an Athenian. The same applies to those who aren't rich and find old age hard to bear. A good person wouldn't easily bear old age if he were poor. But a bad one wouldn't be at peace with himself even if he were wealthy. Did you inherit most of your wealth, Cephalus? I asked, or did you make it for yourself? What did I make for myself, Socrates, you ask? As a money-maker, I'm in a sort of mean between my grandfather and my father. My grandfather and namesake inherited about the same amount of wealth as I possess, but multiplied it many times. My father, Lysanias, however, diminished that amount to even less than I have now. As for me, I'm satisfied to leave my sons here not less but a little more than I inherited. The reason I asked is that you don't seem to love money too much, and those who haven't made their own money are usually like you, but those who have made it for themselves are twice as fond of it as those who haven't. Just as poets love their poems and fathers love their children, so those who have made their own money don't just care about it because it's useful, as other people do, but because it's something they've made themselves. This makes them poor company, for they haven't a good word to say about anything except money. That's true. It certainly is, but tell me something else. 
what's the greatest good you've received from being wealthy? What I have to say probably won't persuade most people. But you know, Socrates, that when someone thinks his end is near, he becomes frightened and concerned about things he didn't fear before. It's then that the stories we're told about Hades, about how people who've been unjust here must pay the penalty there, stories he used to make fun of, twist his soul this way and that for fear they're true. And whether because of the weakness of old age, or because he is now closer to what happens in Hades and has a clearer view of it, or whatever it is, he is filled with foreboding and fear, and he examines himself to see whether he has been unjust to anyone. If he finds many injustices in his life, he awakes from sleep in terror, as children do, and lives in anticipation of bad things to come. But someone who knows that he hasn't been unjust has sweet good hope as his constant companion, a nurse to his old age, as Pindar says, for he puts it charmingly, Socrates, when he says that when someone lives a just and pious life, quote, sweet hope is in his heart. Nurse and companion to his age. Hope, captain of the ever-twisting minds of mortal men. End quote. How wonderfully well he puts that. It's in this connection that wealth is most valuable, I'd say. Not for every man, but for a decent and orderly one. Wealth can do a lot to save us from having to cheat or deceive someone against our will, and from having to depart for that other place in fear because we owe sacrifice to a god or money to a person. It has many other uses, but benefit for benefit, I'd say that this is how it is most useful to a man of understanding. A fine sentiment, Cephalus, but speaking of this very thing itself, namely justice, are we to say unconditionally that it is speaking the truth and paying whatever debts one has incurred? Or is doing these things sometimes just, sometimes unjust? I mean this sort of thing, for example. Everyone would surely agree that if a sane man lends weapons to a friend and then asks for them back when he is out of his mind, the friend shouldn't return them and wouldn't be acting justly if he did. Nor should anyone be willing to tell the whole truth to someone who is out of his mind. That's true then the definition of justice isn't speaking the truth and repaying what one has borrowed. It certainly is, Socrates, said Polemicus, interrupting, if indeed we're to trust Simonides at all. Well then, Cephalus said, I'll hand over the argument to you, as I have to look after the sacrifice. So, Polemicus said, am I then to be your heir in everything? You certainly are, Cephalus said, laughing and off he went to the sacrifice. Then tell us, heir to the argument, I said, just what Simonides stated about justice that you consider correct. He stated that it is just to give to each what is owed to him, and it's a fine saying in my view. Well now, it isn't easy to doubt Simonides, for he's a wise and godlike man, but what exactly does he mean? Perhaps you know Polemicus, but I don't understand him. Clearly, he doesn't mean what we said a moment ago, that it is just to give back whatever a person has lent you, even if he's out of his mind when he asks for it. And yet, what he has lent you is surely something that's owed to him, isn't it? Yes. But it is absolutely not to be given to him when he's out of his mind. That's true. Then it seems that Simonides must have meant something different, 
when he says that to return what is owed is just. Something different indeed by God. He means that friends owe it to their friends to do good to them, never harm. I follow you. Someone doesn't give a lender back what he's owed by giving him gold, if doing so would be harmful, and both he and the lender are friends. Isn't that what you think Simonides meant? It is. But what about this? Should one also give one's enemies whatever is owed to them? By all means, one should give them what is owed to them, and in my view, what enemies owe to each other is appropriately and precisely something bad. It seems then that Simonides was speaking in riddles, just like a poet, when he said what justice is, for he thought it just to give to each what is appropriate to him, and this is what he called giving him what is owed to him. What else did you think he meant? Then what do you think he'd answer if someone asked him, Simonides, which of the things that are owed or that are appropriate for someone or something to have does the craft we call medicine give, and to whom or what does it give them? It's clear that it gives medicines, food and drink to bodies. And what owed or appropriate things does the craft we call cooking give, and to whom or what does it give them? It gives seasonings to food. Good. Now, what does the craft we call justice give, and to whom or what does it give it? If we are to follow the previous answers, Socrates, it gives benefits to friends and does harm to enemies. Simonides means, then, that to treat friends well and enemies badly is justice. I believe so. And who is most capable of treating friends well and enemies badly in matters of disease and health? A doctor. And who can do so best in a storm at sea? A ship's captain. What about the just person? In what actions and what work is he most capable of benefiting friends and harming enemies? In wars and alliances, I suppose? All right. Now, when people aren't sick, Polemicus, a doctor is useless to them. True. And so is a ship's captain to those who aren't sailing. Yes. And to people who aren't at war, a just man is useless. No, I don't think that at all. Justice is also useful in peacetime, then. It is. And so is farming, isn't it? Yes. For getting produce? Yes. And shoemaking as well? Yes. For getting shoes, I think you'd say? Certainly. Well, then, what is justice useful for getting and using in peacetime? Contracts, Socrates. And by contracts, do you mean partnerships or what? I mean partnerships. Is someone a good and useful partner in a game of checkers because he's just or because he's a checkers player? Because he's a checkers player. And in laying bricks and stones, is a just person a better and more useful partner than a builder? Not at all. In what kind of partnership, then, is a just person a better partner than a builder or a liar player in the way that a liar player is better than a just person at hitting the right notes? In money matters, I think. Except, perhaps, Polemicus in using money. For whenever one needs to buy a horse jointly, I think a horse breeder is a more useful partner, isn't he? Apparently. And when one needs to buy a boat, it's a boat builder or a ship's captain. Probably. In what joint use of silver or gold, then, is a just person a more useful partner than the others?
when it must be deposited for safekeeping, Socrates. You mean whenever there is no need to use them, but only to keep them. That's right. Then it is when money isn't being used that justice is useful for it? I'm afraid so. And whenever one needs to keep a pruning knife safe, but not to use it, justice is useful both in partnerships and for the individual. When you need to use it, however, it is skill at vine pruning that's useful. Apparently. You'll agree, then, that when one needs to keep a shield or a liar safe and not to use them, justice is a useful thing. But when you need to use them, it is soldiery or musicianship that's useful. Necessarily. And so, too, with everything else. Justice is useless when they are in use, but useful when they aren't? It looks that way. In that case, justice isn't worth much, since it is only useful for useless things. But let's look into the following point. Isn't the person most able to land a blow, whether in boxing or any other kind of fight, also most able to guard against it? Certainly. And the one who is most able to guard against disease is also most able to produce it unnoticed. So it seems to me, anyway. And the one who is the best guardian of an army is the very one who can steal the enemy's plans and dispositions. Certainly. Whenever someone is a clever guardian, then, he is also a clever thief. Probably so. If a just person is clever at guarding money, therefore, he must also be clever at stealing it. According to our argument, at any rate. A just person has turned out, then, it seems to be a kind of thief. Maybe you learned this from Homer, for he's fond of Autolycus, the maternal grandfather of Odysseus, whom he describes as better than everyone at lying and stealing. According to you, Homer and Simonides, then, justice seems to be some sort of craft of stealing, one that benefits friends and harms enemies. Isn't that what you meant? No, by God, it isn't. I don't know any more what I did mean. But I still believe that to benefit one's friends and harm one's enemies is justice. Speaking of friends, do you mean those a person believes to be good and useful to him? or those who actually are good and useful, even if he doesn't think they are, and similarly with enemies. Probably, one loves those one considers good and useful, and hates those one considers bad and harmful. But surely people often make mistakes about this, believing many people to be good and useful when they aren't, and making the opposite mistake about enemies. They do indeed. And then good people are their enemies, and bad ones their friends? That's right. And so it's just to benefit bad people and harm good ones? Apparently. But good people are just and able to do no wrong. True. Then according to your account, it's just to do bad things to those who do no injustice. No. That's not just at all, Socrates. My account must be a bad one. It's just, then, is it, to harm unjust people and benefit just ones. That's obviously a more attractive view than the other one, anyway. Then it follows, Polemicus, that it is just for the many who are mistaken in their judgment to harm their friends who are bad, and benefit their enemies who are good. And so we arrive at a conclusion opposite to what we said Simonides meant. That certainly follows. But let's change our definition, for it seems that we didn't define friends and enemies correctly. 
How did we define them, Polemicus? We said that a friend is someone who is believed to be useful. And how are we to change that now? Someone who is both believed to be useful and is useful is a friend. Someone who is believed to be useful but isn't is believed to be a friend but isn't. And the same for the enemy. According to this account, then, a good person will be a friend and a bad one an enemy. Yes. So you want us to add something to what we said before about justice, when we said that it is just to treat friends well and enemies badly. You want us to add to this that it is just to treat well a friend who is good and to harm an enemy who is bad. Right. That seems fine to me. Is it, then, the role of a just man to harm anyone? Certainly he must harm those who are both bad and enemies. Do horses become better or worse when they are harmed? Worse. With respect to the virtue that makes dogs goods, or to the one that makes horses good? The one that makes horses good. And when dogs are harmed, they become worse in the virtue that makes dogs good, not horses? Necessarily. Then won't we say the same about human beings too, that when they are harmed, they become worse in human virtue? Indeed. But isn't justice human virtue? Yes, certainly. Then people who are harmed must become more unjust? So it seems. Can musicians make people unmusical through music? They cannot. Or horsemen make people unhorsemanlike through horsemanship? No. Well, then, can those who are just make people unjust through justice? In a word, can those who are good make people bad through virtue? They cannot. It isn't the function of heat to cool things, but of its opposite. Yes. Nor the function of dryness to make things wet, but of its opposite. Indeed. Nor the function of goodness to harm, but of its opposite. Apparently. And a just person is good? Indeed. Then, Polemarchus, it isn't the function of a just person to harm a friend or anyone else. Rather, it is the function of his opposite, an unjust person. In my view, that's completely true, Socrates. If anyone tells us, then, that it is just to give each what he's owed, and understands by this that a just man should harm his enemies and benefit his friends, he isn't wise to say it, since what he says isn't true, for it has become clear to us that it is never just to harm anyone. I agree. You and I shall fight as partners, then, against anyone who tells us that Simonides, Bias, Pittacus, or any of our other wise and blessedly happy men said this. I, at any rate, am willing to be your partner in the battle. Do you know to whom I think the saying belongs that it is just to benefit friends and harm enemies? Who? I think it belongs to Periander, or Perdiccas, or Xerxes, or Ismenius of Corinth, or some other wealthy man who believed himself to have great power. That's absolutely true. All right, since it has become apparent that justice and the just aren't what such people say they are, what else could they be? Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. 
To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.